This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. I want to tell you a story. It's a story you may think you know, but <laughs> you don't. Over there! What is that? Papa! <gasps> it speaks! He's just a puppet! No, I'm not! I'm a real boy! People are sometimes afraid of things they don't know. I don't understand. Ah, we have found him, our star. Everyone shall love you and call your name Pinocchio. Pinocchio! I have something I'd like to give you. It is a school book which belonged to a very special boy. The boy you lost? Enough of this nonsense. Hey, where are you going? You tell him I love him. And I won't be a burden anymore. Hello? The wooden boy with the borrowed soul. While you may have eternal life, your loved ones, they do not. You never know how long you have with someone. Until they're gone. The boy loves you for who you are. Guide him to be good. Stop that! Don't hurt him anymore! You may have no strength, but I control you. Please bring him back to me. such a wonderful gift. All right, everybody, you're just listening to the trailer for Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, and the story is as follows. A father's wish magically brings a wooden boy to life in Italy, giving him a chance to care for the child. The film is starring Ewan McGregor, David Bradley, Gregory Mann, Ron Perlman, Kate Blanchett, Finn Wolfhard, Christoph Waltz, and Tilda Swinton. It is written and directed by Guillermo del Toro, directed by Mark Gustafsson, and it is written by Patrick McHale and Matthew Robbins. Here to join me today for this podcast review, I have Sarah Clements. Hello. And Dan Baer. I've got no, wait, wrong version of Pinocchio. 
<laughs> oh man, for those of you who had to bear the Disney Plus version earlier this year, I am so, so, so sorry. The amount of times I have said to people though, yeah, I'm watching Pinocchio and they're like, why? <laughs> they, they, they are confusing uh, this version with multitude of other versions and that's the thing is that while we've seen this story get told many times before in some cases most recently in live action in other cases more recent disney live action from robert zemeckis and in other times in forms of animation and in other times in a roberto benini version that we all prefer to just happily forget I think Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio is the one that is going to live on for a whole new generation. Of course, the original Disney animated film is timeless for a multitude of different reasons. Something that I recently actually said to Guillermo in person, and I believe this wholeheartedly, is that while that was a film from my childhood, his version of Pinocchio is a version that will stick with me throughout my adulthood. So in that adaptation process, there are a lot of themes to touch upon here. And there's a lot in the storytelling that is filled with a surprising or maybe not so surprising, given who's at the helm here, amount of complexity, nuance, thematic depth, and dare I say, a wee little bit of magic. So in talking about this latest Netflix film, why don't we start off first with Sarah Clements. Sarah, what did you think of Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio? Well, just like he said about the new Pinocchio and you're like, why are you watching that? Every time, honestly, every time someone watches any Disney Pinocchio, I'm just going to be like, why? Because Guillermo's is right there. Disney should be embarrassed. This is a masterpiece. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, but one of my biggest issues with Disney Pinocchio was that it just completely sort of glosses over the fact that Geppetto made Pinocchio because he lost his son. And like the new live action Disney did touch on that a little bit, but you don't really feel the kind of loneliness, the anger, the pain that you feel in this Guillermo del Toro's adaptation. And honestly, like David Bradley, like I only know him as like Filch from Harry Potter. And he was just always so angry and mean all the time. And this is just like a totally new kind of way of me seeing him. I mean, I don't, you don't see him as an actor, but you can hear it in his voice. And it's really, he's so great at sucking you right in and letting you feel how his character feels. And it's just, I just love the themes, the heavy themes of death that the death that the film discusses and humanity and what becoming a real boy would actually mean for Pinocchio. And it's just so beautiful. Stop motion is incredible. The texture, even the production design is amazing. And I love the slight, the changes that they made. Um, I mean, I don't know how spoilery. Can I get kind of spoilery in my intro? I mean, to be honest with you, considering how well known the story is here, I think it's okay to get okay. into spoilers. I love the World War II aspect. Mm -hmm. that we lean into here and how like the weird island with the where they turn into donkeys is gone and it's turned into some a world war ii kind of take on the story i really love that 
And um, yeah, I mean, Guillermo is just, he just brought so much, I guess, life to this story that Disney, that kind of something different that Disney had been missing this whole time. And he captured so much heart. And I mean, he got me crying over this little piece of wood and Disney could never. So I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Dan Baer, on to you next. What did you think of Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio? It's gorgeous. The animation, the stop motion, really just just beautiful. Every character piece, every set piece, it's all just a wonder to look at. And Alexandra Desplat definitely came in with a top tier score for him, which he doesn't always do these days. That man is probably working way too much. But this is a good one. I thought the songs were delightful. I uh, loved the voice performances. But. Oh, <laughs> I was wondering what this was all leading up to. This story has just never really worked for me. It's never been a favorite, mostly because I find Pinocchio himself to be an insufferable little twat. And he's not any less so in this. I mean, that's sort of the the whole the whole story. That's what it's built around. Dan's never going to have children, for the record, people. <laughs> I, I never say never. Oh, I'm saying never right now. But my inclination <laughs> is that I would prefer not to have them for a while. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I sort of feel like it. It's very beautiful. I would never ever say that it's a bad movie. It's just one that didn't really fully work for me and i think partially because of just the the level of early hype uh from when it premiered um in london i think it just now that i'm finally watching it it was like all i could see were kind of these little nitpicky flaws that i'm like why are you, why is the praise so high when there's this 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 that just doesn't work about it but overall i think this is it's definitely worth a watch and something that I think I think it's one of those animated films that works just as well for adults as it will for their children. Yeah. Which is becoming, I feel like, increasingly rare these days. More of the recent, even Disney and Pixar movies just feel very targeted at young children and only young children and this one really does work for all ages i think they will get something out of it and it's not like the adults watching it are going to be bored or like you know willing to take a nap with this time that they're sticking their kids in front of the tv no they'll want to watch this too um so like great again like just kudos 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 to everyone involved in making this this story is just like not my thing and this film did nothing to convince me that it was all right interesting i'm gonna dive into some of that here in a little bit because i i'm curious to know uh what doesn't work but for me i just fell head over heels in love with this movie i think that when you're in the hands of a master storyteller that really does make the difference in the world someone even like edgar wright whose last film, Last Night in Soho, I was not particularly a fan of, but you still can sense this 
enthusiasm for a love for storytelling that comes through in nearly every single frame of that movie. Ryan Johnson lately is another one with the Glass Onion and the Knives Out and he, however many he's ever going to do in, in the future with Daniel Craig. I say to myself, you know, I feel like I'm being robbed by not getting some more original Ryan Johnson movies. But if that same level of enthusiasm that he has displayed on these two whodunit films continues on, I'll be down with it forever. There's something about a filmmaker's passion just shining through in their storytelling that is infectious. I mean, I think we can all identify certain filmmakers where that does come through in one shape or form or another. And so with Guillermo, it's very much that. It's one thing to watch his movies. It's another thing to hear him talk about them, too. And anytime the man opens his mouth in a Q&A, an interview, or whatever it is to talk about his craft and what goes into the storytelling, it just adds so many additional layers to the experience. So when I sit down to watch Pinocchio, I immediately say to myself, okay, this is a story that I'm very familiar with. We're all familiar with it. And, and Dan, like you said before, in your case, not even a big fan of it to begin with. But as you're watching the story unfold here, you know, this is a near two hour animated film, stop motion animated uh, for one. So it definitely takes its time. It doesn't ever feel rushed to me in a lot of uh, ways that where I feel like animated films tend to feel. And there is also, I think, the thing that helps me personally is what you were saying a minute ago, Dan, about there being this balance between a story that kids can learn some valuable lessons from and adults can be reminded of things that, yeah, maybe they already know, but then also be kind of left in awe, not just by the technical mastery of the stop motion, production design, score, all those other elements, but also be left in awe of how well these very complex and adult themes can then be conveyed in a way where a child can understand them and then maybe engage in thoughtful conversation with their parents about them afterwards. I, I think those valuable life lessons are the things that a, a parent uh, would hope that a film can like aid them, if you will. Like it's almost like the, the film is a tool for them in trying to teach and guide their child on life's many twists and turns that it takes along the way and what some of us may or may not have to encounter. Uh, and here, there's a lot of fantastical elements, of course, but there's also these very human moments, like uh, Sarah, like you were saying, of loss, of dealing with mortality. And for me, th these were things that I really responded to. And then you combine that with the masterstroke of setting it within World War II fascist Italy and having it, you know, be given a layer of contemporary resonance to today in some of the nationalism that we are experiencing, not just here in America, but in all other parts of the world as well. I, I just, I, I was completely blown away by this. This is by far uh, one of my favorite films of the year, easily. And so those are just my opening thoughts, for goodness sake. <laughs> 
there's so much to talk about here. Uh, I, I want to uh, start off with one element that was a surprise for me when I heard it after its premiere at the London Film Festival. This actually is a musical. There are songs sung in this movie. I did not know that heading into this. Uh, so let's start off with that. What did you all think of the songs here? Because for me personally, they work well within the film. And I like many of the sequences uh, in terms of the animation and how they are uh, shot and edited and the way that they're just, you know, constructed. But it's not the kind of songs that I would listen to like on my own separate outside of the movie. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. No, I agree. I think they fit perfectly for the film. And, you know, there's not too many, but there's just enough. And they're all original. But, um, yeah, I don't know if I would be able to listen to them, like you said, out of Mm -hmm. context. But they're still really great for the film. I mean, I was kind of amazed in the very beginning when uh, my son came on and I was like, holy shit, is David Bradley actually singing? <laughs> mm-hmm. I I do. I think the, the songs in particular feel like very kid oriented. They kind of feel like children's songs. They have that sort of sing songy quality to yeah, them. Like Chow Papa. Yeah. And like kind of very simple, but they work. They get the job done. They feel very much a part of the world of the story. They feel like perfectly tailored to this version of the story. Um, but yeah, I agree. I, I don't think I would listen to them on my own, but again, like they're not made for me. They're definitely made for kids. <laughs> I mean, that one song, uh, what is it? Everything is new to me. Yeah. That it's mm-hmm. so adorable. <laughs> yeah. I love that balance between like, some things are clearly for adults and some things are for children, but you, you would both love it like universally, you know? Yeah. I mean, if you don't like everything is new to me, for example, I'm sure that some of you, if not all of you probably got a kick out of Christoph Waltz doing, we were a King once. (laughs) That was (laughs) incredible. He's amazing. I got to say, I think Christoph Waltz is so perfectly cast in this. Yes. That I would venture to say this is one of his very best performances. Yeah, I can get down with that. Like the vocal delivery is so on point for how well he just uh, conveys Count Volp's just overall cunning and menace and just a sniveling. Oh, like I just want to wring my hands around his neck. I, I, I despise him so much. And the way that he also treats uh, poor uh, Spazatura. The, uh, the 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 monkey assistant. Oh, no, poor monkey! I I just oh my heart breaks for that monkey so so much. He's such a despicable villain, and I I think Walt does such a fantastic job with him in this. Shout out to Kate Blanchett for voicing the monkey. Right? Uh, oh, what a gig! I need so badly. Netflix, are you listening? I need to see behind the scenes footage yes. of Kate in the booth, please. Yeah. 
I, I need to see her getting in character for this yeah. role. <laughs> what, a, what an amazing casting choice that is, too. You cast Kate Blanchett. Like, <laughs> it's like, you know, and, 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 I, and I don't know. I'm, I'm going to take a wild guess and say this had to have been after Nightmare Alley. Yeah, it's because yeah. the production for this movie is so long, it's hard to say. But I'm going to take a guess and say the Nightmare Alley experience must have been so positive that Kate probably just heard Guillermo wants you back and she didn't even question what the role was at all and just mm-hmm. said yes. <laughs> yeah, I was just I was reading an interview with um, him talking about it or her talking about it. And yeah, it was like after right after Nightmare Alley, she was like, oh, when are we going to work again? And then he mentioned Pinocchio and he was just like, do you want to play the monkey? And she was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) What would Lydia Tarr think of Kate Blanchett playing a monkey? I wonder. (laughs) Why did Sean Evans not ask her to do the monkey voice on Hot Ones? (laughs) I mean, if it's perfectly in that context. Since we're talking about the uh, voice performances here, uh, David Bradley uh, was mentioned a minute ago by you, Sarah. And not just uh, is he known for the Harry Potter franchise, but I also, of course, know him from Game of Thrones, uh, The Strain, a few others. And here, this is – it's interesting because – from a vocal delivery standpoint, he had so much more to do than I think I expected. And then on top of that, the facial animation work that went into the performance of the puppet was, dare I say, some of the best I've ever seen in stop motion animation ever. It so just, good. It matched perfectly. And like whenever he, whenever you could tell he was so sad, the tears just were coming down his face. And I was like, what is going on? There's lip quivering going I on here. So I, I, so my good. jaw dropped. It's so good. The animation for Jim. This is across every version of Pinocchio that I've seen, which is like, granted, not all of them, but still, like, this is the best Geppetto animated live action whatever this is the best performance of geppetto (laughs) i mean even the way they animate uh him being drunk um the like him creating pinocchio he he does it in a drunken rage almost though as if like a shot like he's making like frankenstein's monster which is so guillermo del toro you know you got the camera swaying from the drunkenness It's like lightning outside. It's dark and stormy. And it's like, oh, those if he's like, you know, like I said, creating like this monster of sorts. Um, And I think that for me, in these moments here of animation, whether it's through the use of the camera and uh, the placement, how it moves throughout the uh, throughout the uh, set and then combine that with the performance so many sequences in this just feel so cinematic to the point that I forgot that it was stop motion animation. And I know that's a weird thing to say. Just a bit. But here's what, but here's where I think the difference lies though. There are some sequences in this where Guillermo his, the place where, like where he puts the camera, how it's edited, it feels like it is constructed as a live action film. I mean, sure, a film is a film. You're not getting what I'm saying, are you? No. Okay. 
what I'm getting at here is even though in animation there are things that you can do that you can't do in live action, it still feels like he is obeying the laws of what you still can only do in a live action film. Like with the camera. Sure. Does that make some does that make more sense? Yeah, I just I don't know. I feel that with like the sort of things that we've been seeing recently in live action movies, it almost feels like there isn't really a line between what you can like there being things that you can do in animation that you can't really do in a quote unquote live action movie. I mean, well, that's all determined by budget nowadays. Yeah. It's just like, I I get what you're, what you're trying to say, but I'm trying to think of an animated movie I've seen recently where I've gone like, yeah, like this movie had to be done in animation because there's no way they could have done that Mm -hmm. with, you know, if it was with live action and I finding it really hard to think of one. Okay, fair enough. So what is it then about stop motion animation that makes it unique and special and lends itself well to the story, you would say? I think it's the like the handcrafted nature of like the literal handcrafted nature of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like the I and I think it's perfect for this story because it is about a little wooden boy who wants to become a real boy or becomes a real boy. He seems, I don't know, his motivation seemed a little weird in this movie compared to other versions of Pinocchio, but that's for a later discussion probably. But because the look of this is just so, it fits perfectly for this story and how they wanted to go about telling it it just looks everything kind of looks a little like it's a wooden carving which it looks so unique even in the world of stop motion animation Mm -hmm. the way these characters there's nothing else that i can think of that really looks like them but i had some like slight issues with what with um there there were two things one is like and maybe this is just like being spoiled because geppetto is so good and he's the first character we really, you know, see. But he's so good. And the puppet for, is it Carlo, his first son? Yes. And some of the other kids specifically, they felt very uncanny valley to me. Like there was, their eyes were very glassy and I had trouble with the look of those when compared to Geppetto who felt so wonderfully expressive and kind of like you were saying, like he was doing some really great acting and the puppets for the kids didn't have that same they didn't seem to have that same soul to it i guess so i'll say this about that really quick i actually think and feel free to disagree with me on this if you want i think that the animation on another netflix stop motion animation film this year wendell and wild is actually better than what's found here yes but I think the storytelling is better here, and that's what tricks my brain into then thinking that this is better animation overall. Um, even though I know that's not the case, it's a better movie. Yeah. Uh, but I can see how people could be fooled into thinking that this is probably better animation. Um, uh, one one thing I will give Pinocchio credit for, though, is the overall 
design of the movie in terms of production design. And I do think the design for Pinocchio himself is actually pretty genius. And I'm a pretty big fan of it. But I do agree, Dan, with what you're saying, that outside of Geppetto, some of the other human characters were a little rough. I actually also have a tiny problem with Pinocchio, too, in that his head looks... It doesn't look like wood would, like the rest of his body does. It looks too smooth. And something about how the light interacts with it, it felt like it was just of a different material than the rest of his body. And this is probably something that only I would, that I, only I have an issue with, but. Yeah, I was going to say, because for me, the thing that uh, works for me with him is, um, I can understand what you're saying about the front yeah. of the face. Yes. But for me, it's about the back. The back. That design is great. Yeah. It's just the front of the face looks like so different. I feel like, you know, we're really looking at a real wooden boy as opposed to the Disney version, which kind of looks like a real boy from the f- beginning, if that makes any sense. No. Yeah. I mean, like he's made from wood and mm-hmm. he looks he actually looks handcrafted from wood yeah. for real. <laughs> And I just watched Wendell and Wilde the other day. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if like, so everything like in Wendell and Wilde, everything is like so smooth and it like almost looks like it could be like computer generated. But here it's, I'm wondering if it was purposely made to look sort of, I don't know if rougher is the right word, but More to sort of, yeah, just yeah. because of the subject matter as in like, the craft I'm wondering if he like brought the crafting of Pinocchio into the other characters, if that makes any sense. <laughs> it did feel to me sometimes like he was definitely like they wanted to emphasize the fact that all these uh, all the characters are puppets, essentially. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And I did yeah. kind of like that. I I like that as like a reason for doing it in this particular medium. I completely agree with that, actually. I would not be surprised if that actually was the intention. I do think that the technology, or sorry, let me rephrase that, the skill of those who meticulously go in and handcraft these performances from these puppets to give us the stop-motion animation has gotten so good that I agree. Something like Wendell and Wild, it doesn't even feel like stop motion animation at a certain point. But something tells me they wanted the audience to know that this was tangible and that this was rough around the edges and they wanted to convey that it was handcrafted. They didn't want it to be so smooth to the point that it was seamless. And I think a part of the magic of this film in particular is those sort of rough kind of almost tangible details in everything like I feel like I can reach in and just like I know that like the texture of stuff you know what I mean yeah and I mean the thing that I think sell that sells a lot of it a lot uh, most of the time is when you then will incorporate an element of visual effects into the shot I'm pretty sure that nearly every shot in this movie is a visual effect shot in one way or another whether it's a set extension for background or if it's just simply eliminating something that was probably in the background of the set in which they were handcrafting this. 
I, I'm sure there had to be stuff in the sh- in the shots that they had to probably like you know paintbrush out. But then on top of that, you add in stuff like the elements of fire and water and smoke, embers. And I was trying to like figure out how they were able to pull off certain things here, especially if it wasn't visual effects, you know, like the water, for example, we have the whole section of the movie with the whale, the different movie, Matt, well, movie. <laughs> they, they never do call the, the sea monster um, or, or is it monstro? monstro now I can't even yeah. monstro. Yeah. They never call him monstro. Do they? No. It's really interesting because if, when Pinocchio first sort of lands on the water before mm-hmm. getting swallowed by Monstro, there is this effect for how they did like the surface of the water that looks so good and so unique. Yeah. And I really loved it. And then when we're in the monster's stomach after and there's water and like stomach acid or whatever is in there. It just kind of looks just like water again. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I really wanted that effect back because it was so unique and interesting and tactile in a way that evoked water, but wasn't watery. But that's the thing though, is that I don't know where the practicality begins and where the visual effects come in. You know, I I, like there is this blend that is taking place that I find to be very interesting because, for example, there are some scenes where the fire is clearly stop motion. And then there are other moments where the fire and and if it is in visual effects, they convinced me that it was. Yeah. And I think that there were some instances of that where it just bothered me. Like, well, if you're going to do this effect, why don't you just use that effect for everything yeah like a little consistency okay i, yeah. I can understand I mean, like that. for example like in the lego movie every fire was like bits of legos like there was yeah. they did not really use actual explosions ever well let's also remember that everything in the lego movie is also visual effects well and not yeah. stop motion fair but like there's yeah. a consistency of like you know style with that sure you i know agree what i mean mm-hmm. that there wasn't here, which is something that I was a little surprised by. Okay. I can get down with that. I I, I hear what you're saying. Uh, what did you all think of Ewan McGregor here as Sebastian J. Cricket? At love. <laughs> yeah, I loved him as well. So funny, charming, energetic, relatable. <laughs> I loved him. I wish they had made a bigger runner out of him, like starting to sing his song and then getting cut off. Oh, I loved that. <laughs> that was so funny. <laughs> they only did it twice. And I'm like, no, it should be like every scene. He should start to sing that song and then get cut off. I also found it very humorous that he consistently gets smashed, squashed, beat up, tossed around. He's just getting the shit kicked out of him the entire movie, pretty much. Oh, the pain. (laughs) So good. And hey, you know what? Through it all, we finally got to hear Ewan McGregor properly sing again. Which truly, just like, that's all I needed. (laughs) Really. (laughs) You know, I I, I was actually... uh, 
telling Dan, you were with me. <laughs> I said to uh, when we when we met Baz Luhrmann, I was like, oh, yeah, you, you spoiled us by showing the world that Ewan McGregor had a set of pipes and no one's been able to get it out of him ever since. <laughs> Look, the man is a gift to us all. And I am just grateful whenever he is in anything. But yes, Ewan, please sing for us more. <laughs> Although I have to be completely honest and forthcoming about this, even though I enjoyed the presence of Sebastian J. Cricket and I enjoyed McGregor's song over the credits. And I also really like the arc of the character as well. And what he does at the end of the movie. There was still a part of me that thought that Ewan McGregor from a voice performance was not quite right for this. Explain yourself. Okay. (laughs) I think he has a very soft and refined round voice that felt a little too eloquent for the character. I did not get that at all i think that your how you described ewan's voice is right mm-hmm. but that never felt wrong for the character to me and that's totally fine i think i would have just imagined the way that this character is written i would have imagined him to be who Who would you have cast who would i have cast yes like, are you thinking like a more deeper wise? No, no, no. I'm no, no, no. I'm actually thinking the opposite. Oh, yeah. Hmm. I'm thinking someone that's like more jittery, uh, high pitched. So Michael Sarah, more like a Charlie Day. Okay. Something that kind of conveys uh, some form of neuroticism. Oh, so Eddie Redmayne. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> Not not quite, but hilarious. <laughs> anyway. I, I get what you're saying. Um, it maybe would have made the slapstick bits with him, I think, feel less refined. But I, th- but I think that's the thing, though. I think Guillermo didn't want to turn him into a caricature. I think yeah. he wanted him to be uh, a very refined uh almost someone that just was proper yeah i think and i think that's kind of a important for how he react relates with pinocchio throughout the film yeah yeah and also it's just funny to have like a cricket have a very very high sense of self-importance yeah and to have that constantly get undercut by him being squished yeah it's funny (laughs) it's just funny and i also like how he actually like makes the cricket noises yes (laughs) yes (laughs) there's one thing in the overall uh creature design in this movie too i want to get some feedback on this as well and just hear what you all think here so sebastian j cricket tilda swinton as both the wood sprite um and also the voice of um death uh death they don't have eyeballs instead it's just like a sea of white in their eyes did either of you feel that this robbed the characters of any kind of personality at times in the animation 
No, because you know what I noticed? What? Um, at one point, the, the wood sprite blinks, but instead of her eyes moving, yeah. it's all the little dots on her, like, wings and stuff. Mm. Yeah, like, the, those that are the, her eyeballs. And when she first appears, it's eyeballs that are, like, floating around magically, and then they sort of come together to form her. Mm-hmm. So, and those become the eyeballs on her wings and stuff, which I also noticed that Sarah and I loved that. That is such a Guillermo, mm-hmm. Guillermo del Toro signature thing. Like, I absolutely loved it. Um, yeah, it made me think of Pan's Labyrinth. Yes, very much so. Although, it bothered me during her last appearance in the film, she just fades away. And I'm like, Wait, if she came together by with all those eyes sort of coming together to form her, why would she not go in the in the in the opposite way? Mm. I, I was just, I wanted like I don't know I wanted something like more beautiful and character appropriate for that entrance, and instead she just sort of like fades out. And like that scene, I think was the best scene in the whole movie. And like that would have been a really like nice little grace note right at the end. And no, I was deprived. <laughs> I, I will say that you both bringing up the eyes on the wings. I am ashamed to say that I did not notice. <laughs> Matt. Yeah. Sorry. It's a very like blink and you'll miss it kind of thing, though. <laughs> Literally and figuratively. <laughs> um, I will look out for it on my next viewing, though. I promise. I think the thing that really, if anything, took away the personality of those characters, it's more to me that their mouths didn't move when they spoke. Oh, well, then, yeah. I mean, that's also probably another thing, too, that I'm, like, also overlooking here. But, yeah, I'm sure that contributed towards it, too. Yeah. But I actually, I I just loved the design of those characters so Mm -hmm. much. I mean, like, and they're all... Sebastian J. Cricket and um, the Wood Sprite and Death, they're, they're characters that it'd be very easy to go like full Guillermo del Toro grotesque with, but they reined that in so that it does feel very like kid friendly still. Yeah. Nope, I get that for sure. Uh, another thing I want to ask about here is Desplat's score. I believe it was you, Dan, who brought it up earlier. One of his best scores in recent years. I'm going to push back on that just a little bit. I think it's a good score. I don't think it's one of his great scores. And part of it is because I felt like at times it was too reminiscent of Shape of Water at moments for me. And then there is one point near the end where there is this really soul-crushing moment between father and son on a beach and I could not for the life of me understand why Desplat's score was pretty overbearing during that moment when I felt like it should have gone for something more soft and more quiet to elicit our emotion in the scene Mm. but that I mean like that's the only point in the movie where I didn't like the choice otherwise the music is lovely it's a thing like it felt I think that the score is doing a lot of heavy lifting in this movie to give the movie the feeling that they want you to have from it. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I think that there's naturally going to be probably 
too much emphasis placed on certain um, emotions in the score at points. Um, and I feel like this ha- that happens more often with animated films than with live action films. And I'm not really sure why, but it's just something that I've noticed. But what I did not realize was that Desplat also did the music for the songs too. Yes. And I thought the songs were just so delightful. And I, I thought that they did a really good job of fitting into the fabric of the soundscape of the movie and not feeling out of place. Like when they suddenly started singing these songs, I was like, Oh, of course. Yeah. And they just fit so well into that world. And because I think, probably because he was doing the score as well as the songs. Yeah, I would agree with that. There was never a a point where I was taken out of the movie or I felt like the transition to go from traditional score to then into song was jarring or anything like that. No, it did feel all of a whole. Yeah. And the sometimes like when you have these musicals, when you don't have like people who are really well versed in musicals, creating them sometimes the the songs can sort of like oh we're we're singing now and this movie they they all flowed from the story i thought really well and from the Mm -hmm. score like it didn't just come out of nowhere what did you all think of the religious iconography uh because like for example the one of the things that i i found to be quite striking in this movie was the way that Pinocchio would admire uh, Jesus on the cross, cross being made out of wood and like just drawing attention to the comparisons there between Pinocchio and Christ, who is this omnipotent being who is resurrected, rises from the dead and has eternal life. And I was like, whoa, 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 Guillermo, Guillermo, buddy, chill. I was like, my brain can only handle so much right now. <laughs> I hated it so much. <laughs> yeah, that's. Like I was the- wondering where you fell on it. I really was. <laughs> that's one of the few things where I'm like, I'm not sure what we're trying to say here. Like, but when you said eternal life, it made me think of like, well, Pinocchio would have eternal life if he did not want to be a real boy. But I don't. I still don't know it what's happening here has something yeah, to do with that, humanity you know but here's the thing like this is the stuff in the movie that actually worked the most for me were taking these themes of mortality and immortality and weaving them throughout the story that was the stuff that i emotionally connected with maybe more so than anything else in here i think the thing that just really bothered me about the whole christ thing is that there's this moment where Pinocchio says, like, I don't understand. He's made out of wood and they all like him, but I'm made out of wood and they hate me. And I, Geppetto goes into this thing about, like, you know, how people are like, scared of the difference sometimes. And I'm like, like n- no, no. The Jesus is a carving <laughs> of... A re- meant to be a representation of a person that existed who was real. They love that person, not a wooden Jesus. <laughs> it, but, 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 but hold on, no. But hold on. I'm going to take it like a step further. Because Jesus is 
meant to be a miracle. Like his death and resurrection is meant to be a miracle that people uh, just naturally accept. And then when presented with any other type of real life miracle, forget about the fact that in this case it's a wooden boy. If it's anything else, we usually approach it with a form of skepticism and we are not willing to accept it. I think that's what they were trying to get at there in terms of people not uh, being able to understand that which is presented before them that would be considered um, unnatural by the laws of nature. I think that absolutely. But my issue is more with like, (laughs) Geppetto just does not know how to be a parent. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, this is the time when you talk about art and like who Jesus was and why they love a piece of art that represents Jesus and how you're different. I there was there was just a lot in the scripting of Geppetto and how he relates to Pinocchio that I that just didn't really work for me in the first act. And and that's one of those things. The other is, of course, I just like don't. He's how old when he has this child? Oh, I was thinking that too. I was like, how old is Geppetto supposed I, to be? Really? Yeah. I mean, there's one point too where like Geppetto is drunk and he falls down the stairs, and I'm like, he he should have broken every bone in his body. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm like that man is probably 70 years old. <laughs> it's like I understand that people did not live as long back then as they do now but yeah they were not looking that old when they were 58 <laughs> and no offense when you have the voice of david bradley coming out of you you don't you, you definitely don't sound 50 yeah <laughs> say the least <laughs> what'd you guys think uh so I, I looked i looked this up online because the emphasis of the pine cone throughout the movie is one that i was like you know what i need to look up the pine cone for a moment here. <laughs> and I found this piece here that I thought was interesting. Uh, throughout the span of recorded human history, pine cones have become a symbol of human enlightenment, resurrection, eternal life, and regeneration. So to have Pinocchio be made from a pine tree, I, I just, I, I really like the symbolism in that. I like the thought that was put into that. Yeah, yeah, and like it kind of makes the Catholicism stuff make more sense. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. Not that I feel like he could have said stuff the same things in different ways still, but like it kind of correlates now. And that's interesting. The fact that it also ties back into, of course, you know, Italian Catholicism. Think about this too for a minute. There are so many moments in this movie. So many that are considered uh, deus ex machinas or a.k.a. acts of God. Like the bombing on the uh, World War II camp mm-hmm. that gets Pinocchio out of the situation that he's in. I mean, I, like the only other moment I could think of that's maybe not a deus ex machina is the end with the whale and Pinocchio's uh, sacrifice. Well, I mean, how they get out of the whale is not a deus ex machina. It's not, you said? Yeah, I mean, using Pinocchio's nose to get near to the blowhole and make the whale sneeze, that that's not a deus ex machina. No, 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 it's not. No, that's what I'm saying is that, but I feel like everything else, like with the bombing uh, and the death of Carlo uh, and, you know, 
like there's a lot of other moments i feel like preceding that uh throughout where it does feel like the plot is taken out of characters hands and you know they are just these random acts of god wrong place wrong time sort of thing or in some cases right place right time (laughs) Mm -hmm. another thing too uh i wanted to ask since we're just on the christ allegory here for a moment there's a scene where Pinocchio is being tied to a wooden pyre in the shape of a cross. And that image will probably haunt my dreams for a while now, I think. <laughs> uh, I, I just thought that it was very, very powerful for Guillermo to use to the point that uh, that was like the one moment in the movie where I started to wonder, are we getting too dark for the kids? I thought that was such a weird thing because like you think of people being burned at the stake you know maybe i'm weird but my brain immediately goes to joan of arc and then the salem witch trials neither of which seem to really have anything to do with this story even this version of it so i was a little like really i thought of which i thought of witches too right away dan it's not just you (laughs) okay good but, but like breaking that down, no, I mean, there is a parallel there, though, right, in terms of the religious iconography and then also the supernatural, right? I yeah, mean, you- made me think of are we trying even at the beginning with the Catholicism stuff when they first see Pinocchio and they're like, oh, my God, like demon just yes. made me think <laughs> of how how they sort of just it's just persecuting what they don't understand, like someone or something they don't understand. You know what I mean? That kind of lesson sort of that is trying to instill in people i totally think so but it's not my thing is is that like it's not very consistent across the whole story like they meet him and they're like oh my god demon devil child be gone with you and then in the circus everyone is oh my god amazed well because they can profit off of him but no, but the audience is not profiting off of it. Oh, him. but the audience doesn't – it's a show. They don't know what's real and what's not. Right. Okay, fine. But then at the 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 youth Nazi camp, which <laughs> I can't believe that I'm saying that um, in relation to a children's movie version of Pinocchio, but here we are, the, the youth – or the youth fascism camp, since we're not in Germany – they are also the kids just like kind of don't question it and they don't bully him or make fun of him at all. I actually think that the storytelling choice, like, like the thing that gets Pinocchio into that situation, this idea of, Oh, he's a wooden child. He can't die. He's the perfect weapon against the enemy. (laughs) I was like, sure, he can't die, but he can be burned. Like, yeah. <laughs> and what do you think war is? It's a lot of flaming things shooting at each other. Like, I don't know. I questioned some of his logic. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was pretty smart. I, I really enjoyed it a lot. I mean, it absolutely made sense that head fascist boy would think that immediately upon seeing him die and then come back. Mm-hmm. But the logic of like yes but he's made of wood like he can still be burned and if he blows up like if a bomb lands on him he's gonna be engulfed in flames i mean pinocchio gets 
I mean, how many ways does Pinocchio die in this movie? He gets shot in the face. He gets shot. He gets run over. He drowns. He t- <laughs> <laughs> it sounds so horrible. Like this poor child. Uh, speaking of poor child. <laughs> I do have to say this. No, because I have to go back to the beginning here for a moment. I think it was a mistake to tell the audience up front via Sebastian J. Cricket's narration that Geppetto had a son, Carlo died, and then show us the sequences of leading up to Carlo's death. I think if they had just not told us up front and just simply introduced us to Geppetto and this boy Carlo, I think that opening could have been 10 times more impactful. I think that the movie could have been more impactful if they revealed later in the movie why Geppetto ended up Mm -hmm. making Pinocchio. Yeah, like, so you're saying don't even start off with that, like, have that be a flashback later on or something. Yeah, like, have him, like... Yeah, same same, same thing. Have him treat Pinocchio, you know, the way he does, and then later reveal, and so that you understand at that point, oh, this is why. I think that would have made it even more emotionally impactful by the end. But, that said, I understand why they started the movie the way they did. Wait, why did they? Well, I think it makes it easier to tell the story knowing that up front. I mean, if you if you do, you know, decide to tell the full story late, like give give that as backstory in the middle of the movie or in the third act of the movie, then you sort of run into the whole, well, if you don't start with that, then where do you start? And if you start with the wood nymph turning him real, you have to kind of address why she's doing so. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's just, it makes it in terms of how to start the movie, giving the full story at the top makes the most sense because it leaves you with the most, you know, which is what, which is why I would have just made one change. I would have just not had the narration reveal that the son died. Show us, don't tell us. I agree, but I think I'm trying to think of what I like. I think we're thinking like adults. Well, that's the other thing I was thinking too, Sarah, is that I wonder if they did play with it differently. And I wonder if it was too dark and too emotionally heavy. Yeah, because they, yeah. yeah. All the animated movies I saw when I was young, you know, someone dies, like Bambi's mom dies, Mm -hmm. the dad in Lion King. There's no warning. You know, is it why I'm fucked up right now and I'm still living at home with my mom? (laughs) Probably. I don't want her, I don't want to leave and have her like die. But now here it's like the first scene, it may be like a little bit like kind of random and a bit jarring, if that's the right word, where it just starts with him at a grave. But at least it's like, oh, his kid died. Okay, we know. And then you see it later and you're like, okay, well, I knew this was going to happen anyway. <laughs> Maybe it would be a bit of a comfort, but I do get what you're saying, Matt. And then by the time we get to the end here, and Pinocchio has chosen to give up his his immortality to save his father, and then Sebastian J. Cricket gives up his one wish to bring Pinocchio even back to life. I really do like that there is this uh, weaving of uh, selflessness that comes from these characters that 
is one that you would see from a, a parent uh, to their child for unconditional love. And I think that that's something that happens automatically in you uh, when you become a parent. Uh, this notion of unconditional love just becomes unbear uh, uh, overbearing and it becomes a universal truth that you then live out the rest of your days knowing that um, I, I am not the most important person in my life. This this person is number one now and I'm number two. And so to see that then reversed and for a child to uh, give that over to the parent, um, I thought was a really, really beautiful arc considering that Pinocchio is portrayed as being, yes, exuberant and childish, but also extremely uh, defiant. And uh, Dan, as you said earlier, maybe a tad bit on the annoying side. Uh, but I think that actually is all deliberate because considering where he ends up at the end of the film and what he learns from it, and then in a very melancholy uh, way that I was not expecting, to then have that one life now, because he can't be brought back, but he still can't die because he is just made of wood. And so for him to then live the rest of his days to then see everyone else in his life die and he still continues on... Oh my God, I, I was just filled with such profound sadness, but also yet a mixture of fulfillment at the same time. It, it, it conveyed a, um, a wide spectrum of emotions in me, and I walked out of this movie on a high by the time we got to the end. I did not like the ending. So you what, you would have preferred that he actually was turned into a real boy? What? <laughs> I don't know. I mean... And in some ways, like, yeah, I mean, that's the whole point of the Pinocchio story is that he eventually learns how to be a good person. And once he does, he's rewarded um, by getting the thing that he wanted, which is to be a real boy. Yeah, it's it's a little bit like, you know, the Wizard of Oz, like Dorothy had to learn the importance of all these other things in order to learn that she had the power to go home all along. But I think my issue with that is more that, like, that scene on the beach is mm-hmm. so good. <laughs> it's, like, it's near perfect. And I thought it worked so well. And, you know, there, Pinocchio sacrificing himself for Geppetto and then Cricket, you know, giving his wish. I liked that little twist that, you know, like, he saves him. And I did like the acknowledgement that the Cricket has of, like, well, did I directly make him a good person? I don't know. Maybe. He never seemed to really listen to me, but he did get there in the end, so... <laughs> take the credit. Take the credit yeah, and exactly. run. Like, I, I really liked that little acknowledgement there, um, but I just think that that scene is so emotional, or it got me rather emotional. And then the sequence after that, that actually ends the movie, it did not have that same kind of emotional impact. Cause I'm like, wait, he, he, he doesn't age. Like he doesn't age. He 
can die somehow because like obviously like he's died before he's gotten shot you know he's done you know like we said he dies like run over drowned yeah (laughs) so he can die but like he hasn't but also like has stayed the same age throughout all of this and will continue to like he's just like an eternal child now i that's the thing that i just didn't really get his his one wish wasn't to be a real boy i i am aware (laughs) right and i think that that's a little bit of a twist on the story here that once again i found to be a subversion of expectation but also to convey an even deeper emotional resonance uh within me because he then lives to see all of his beloved ones in his life die and he still continues on and i the way that sebastian uh, ends the movie, you know, asking, will he eventually die? Maybe. And maybe that is what makes him a real boy. It got me thinking about, okay, I got to get off the whole, I want to be a real boy mindset of what the previous iterations of the story have told me before. And I think what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to hone in on the central relationship of father and son and him being there for Geppetto when Geppetto needed him the most. And what Pinocchio was able to get out of that relationship as well. And I think that that connection, that is more real than actually then becoming, you know, a real boy. It's, it's, that, it's that desire to be loved, be seen, be understood to be cared for. I, I, I can't, I, I hope I'm doing a good job of explaining it here, but it's like whether he's real or not is irrelevant. I get, I get what you're saying. I just think that what it was trying to go for with that ending, it's the one place in the movie where I was like, I don't think kids will get this. It felt really like, ambiguous to me because it's kind of like well is he gonna die is he not and that didn't really bother me and like I agree I thought about what you said too Matt about how it's really the connections we make and the love and loss we experience that makes us human but I also get what Dan's saying about will will kids get that and they probably won't (laughs) oh I mean but that's what goes back to something I was saying earlier which is I wouldn't expect a kid to get it but what i would hope for Mm -hmm. is i would hope that they in their confusion might turn to their parent and ask a question Mm -hmm. and then that gives the parent an opportunity to then be a parent for their child and teach them something very valuable about life Mm -hmm. and i like that there's so many things in this film that would apply to that Mm mm-hmm yeah, that's why I was saying earlier, the movie, I think, is a really wonderful tool for parents in that it could inspire conversation uh, amongst you and your child. It would actually be kind of sad if your child watched this and just like kind of shrugged and went, meh, <laughs> had nothing to say about it or nothing to ask about, you know, especially when Mussolini shows up. I feel like I they should really probably ask some questions. <laughs> yeah, like, who is that? Can you <laughs> who is who that, is that dad? <laughs> I like it, the puppets. <laughs> That's the puppet I don't like. <laughs> Pinocchio mocks him during a poop song, for goodness sake. So, 
Oh. <sighs> Somebody's got to take clips from Solo and like put it up against the poop song, please. Oh, God. <laughs> please. God. On that note, I think we're up to final thoughts here. <laughs> Sarah, any final thoughts on Pinocchio? Anything that we didn't mention that you want to bring up? Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. I I literally just said it, Mussolini. (laughs) 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 That was about it. Um, Yeah, I feel like we touched on everything. I really liked Dan's, you know, difference of opinion. I mean, for some very good conversation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Always appreciated. Dan, how about you? Any uh, final thoughts here? Um, I don't know that I needed this to be set in Mussolini's regime exactly um but it is one of uh del toro's favorite subjects and you know this is i love that he sort of has this unofficial trilogy with this the devil's backbone and pan's labyrinth yes <laughs> as like stories nominally for children or like allegedly for children or they could be for children but they're really for adults about yes. the horrors of fascism i love that and i think this is the one of those that works the least for me Partially because I think it, by the nature of it being more explicitly for kids, I think it's a bit um, a bit broader in how it goes about doing that. But I think that, you know, it definitely reaps rewards in terms of how I think kids will respond to it. And like you were saying, like, opens up the quite the topic for conversation. Yeah. And especially in terms of, like, kids were really, like, joining the army yeah yeah they were oh yeah (laughs) and then it's an opportunity for you to say you know what let's watch this beautiful movie called jojo rabbit (laughs) (laughs) and you can really see like what how this really fucked up those kids heads (laughs) um but yeah i really beautiful movie to look at and listen to i just wish that i got more out of this story than you know than i tend to and i like the things that they added but on the whole it still didn't really it's just this is just not a story that i vibe with i guess and that's fine speaking of uh jojo rabbit tim blake nelson as the black rabbits playing around uh cards oh i love that i love that i love that del toro just has his regulars who pop up 
even in roles where you may not think that they're like perfectly suited for it. Like Ron Perlman's in this, everyone, <laughs> you know, I love I love that he will just find a way to incorporate Ron Perlman into his movies. I mean, look, Kate Blanchett doing monkey yeah, as a is. monkey. <laughs> I think that's all that needs to be said. Yes. <laughs> uh, the explanation of what is a burden also really resonated with me a lot that I loved. Yeah. yeah. A painful thing you must carry, even if it hurts you very much. And I really wish that they had like gone into that a little more with the uh, <laughs> fascist youth camp. <laughs> like give them a heavy pack to something. He's like, oh, what a burden or something, you know, dumb like sure. that. But like it would have been dumb, but I would have been like, yeah, that's symbolism for you. <laughs> oh, there is an iris out transition on Geppetto at one point in this movie. Did you did like did you notice it, Dan? Yup. <laughs> And if I remember correctly, it's never used again. Nope. I, I just would like to know the motivation behind that choice. That's all. I, I would have liked them to use more. I love a good iris out in scene transition. Love it. I would. They think people should use it more often. Yeah. Yeah. That's why it, I think that's why it stood out to me, though, is that. I couldn't recall it popping back up again. And then I was trying to understand, well, why was it used there? And what meaning was he hoping to convey through that? Um, so why don't you direct message Guillermo and ask? <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, you know what? Maybe I will. Uh, and then the last thing, why not? <laughs> the last thing uh, here that I have as a note is I loved the animation for the nose growing during the lies of how it's an actual tree branch mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with leaves and other branches stemming off of it. Really, really love the conceptual design of that. I love it. And then I love how he just pulls his nose off at one point. Yes. Like, I'm <laughs> my own nose. <laughs> it's too big. It's going to break. <laughs> All right. As far as a grade goes out of 10, you know, I, I would say that, some of the things that, you know, we pointed out here uh, were flaws I agreed with, some I disagreed with. I was aware of most of them while watching the movie on the first go around. But then by the time we got to the third act, I was crying. And so my grade got bumped up a point. I'm giving this a nine out of ten. It's one of my one of my favorite films of the year, honestly, even with some of the flaws that we pointed out. I just really responded to the themes of this movie. And as I said earlier, when you're dealing with a master filmmaker who just knows how to utilize the camera, music, sound, editing, there's just this attention to detail on every single level that is just there all in service of the story. There's something really and I'm, I'm sorry for using this word again because it is a little cliche, but there is something magical about that that not many filmmakers are able to capture. But he is so. Mm, nine out of ten for me, Sarah. How about you? Um, I'm giving it. I'm giving it an eight out of ten. And Dan Bear, I will continue the trend and say that I am a seven. All right. As far as the Oscar potential goes for Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, uh, I think it's pretty fair to say that it is the front runner for best animated feature of this year, and. I don't know. Has anyone like given any thought to anything that could possibly beat it at this point? 
I no. don't think there. It, well, I mean, Matt, you have seen Puss in Boots. I have seen Everyone Puss in Boots. Everyone seems to be loving that as well. That is the only thing that we haven't seen yet. So, but I also know too that they don't like rewarding sequels, they unless do. if it's the Toy Story series. <laughs> it's true, but that's like the only thing that could that is like left to be seen by you know the majority of audiences. And I don't think anything that has come before has quite matched the love that this has, other than Marcel the Shell, which is already a tough sell, I think, for the animation branch. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't think anything is going to be standing in Guillermo's way to get this. I just can't wait to call him three-time Academy Award winner Guillermo del Toro. Well, you know, I mean, it could be more because he has a writing credit on the songs. Yes, that is true. He does. Although I do think that the song category is pretty competitive this year, but I don't know, like Chow Papa, I guess, would have to be the one that they would probably submit. I think that's the one that they're pushing, and I think that makes sense, even though it's not my favorite song. I would push Ewan McGregor's song, frankly, but um, I get why they would go with Chow Papa. It's a lovely song, and I, I would not be upset if that made it into the lineup at all. I also think, too, that... It is time for an animated film to finally be recognized for a production design. I was just going to say that. I, I go on this rant like every year. <laughs> I mean, people listening to this don't know how like relentless I am in our group chats for FYCs for our internal awards for both like the end of year and the um, the retrospectives. <laughs> I have like animated movie and production design is kind of my thing. And yeah, the production design in this is incredible and should absolutely be up for a nomination, but like they just don't do that. They will put a stop motion film into visual effects, but will not reward it with production design. And I don't understand. How do we feel about visual effects? I don't know. I think I, it's a t- tough one. Yeah. This because year, I, there's a lot of things. And like you were saying earlier, like I feel like the visual effects in Wendelin Wild were just more, like, they were better. <laughs> they were more, like, eye-popping uh, in terms of how smooth they looked. See, here's the thing. You actually don't know the visual effects work that goes into something like this until you see a behind the scenes video. Yeah, it's true. And then it's pretty mind blowing. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what they would just need to do in their campaign for this is just do whatever they can to highlight showing videos yeah. of them on set in front of these green screens and then conveying to people. Yeah, like this all had to be digitally replaced. Or whatever else they had to do to like aid the animation. I think that there are more prospects even beyond this. Uh, I think that there is a world where this contends possibly in, in adapted screenplay. Given the changes that were made to the material for this particular adaptation. Taking a classic story and making it feel somewhat unique. Um, I, I have a feeling, especially considering, once again, Del Toro's... Um, love for storytelling and how infectious that can be for some people. I wouldn't be surprised. I could totally see it. I could see that happening. I don't know that I'm ready to predict it yet, but I could see that happening. I could also see it making a play in score too. 
Oh, well, Desplot being a branch favorite, I mean, mm. yeah, that kind of goes without saying, I think. I, I'm actually, I'm actually of the mindset that I think that that's, like, the nomination that above all others that we've talked about here, that would probably be the one that would get in the most likely next to animated feature, I think. Yeah. But this is all short to say, when you start tallying these up, and depending on how many of them could actually get in, what are the odds that this makes it into picture? I think I need to see how, like, general audiences react to it first. Mm -hmm. Like, the early word from critics out of London was, like, rapturous. And then the one, the reviews from critics since then have been mostly, like, really good, but not quite that level. I don't know, Dan. It still has a 97% of Rotten Tomatoes with an 8.4 rating. Which is really good. Which is yeah. really good. I just, I haven't seen, like, quite the level of, like, the super high level. But they've still been very, very good. I think the thing that hurts it, actually, more so than anything, is the lack of box office. Yeah, it's hard to tell if something that is streaming is a quote-unquote hit or not. I do think this is one that will obviously play well to uh, members who are parents or grandparents and put on the screener with their kids or take their kids to a theater to see it. I think that it will play really well to those people. I think the Bow of the Line craft branches also... I think that's who I mean, I understand actors are huge. Mm -hmm. I really think they should focus their campaign on the individual uh, craft branches of the Academy, because I think there is enough here that you can make some really compelling arguments. And then if you get enough of those people together, I mean, it, remember, it's a straight year of 10 and. Yeah, it has it has one of the best champions for cinema, which is another topic of conversation that so many people care about right now, leading like as the face of this campaign. Everybody loves Guillermo, but right. every time an animated movie has come close in recent years to getting that best picture nomination, we hear the same thing. But 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 here's the difference, though. The last time an animated film got into Best Picture wasn't a straight year of 10 in 2010. It wasn't a straight year of 10, and it had the Disney imprimatur behind it. Disney Pixar. And it is true that the only animated films to ever be nominated for Best Picture have all been Disney, Disney Pixar. Yep. So this would be a first. I, I totally recognize that, but I really think the secret weapon is Guillermo. Guillermo absolutely is the secret weapon, and people will, I think, be very fast to bring up, like, he got Nightmare Alley in last year. But, like, <laughs> Nightmare Alley was, like, the last or one of the last big premieres that year. It was the shiny new toy at the very end of the year. I also think a lot of that is also a combination of Guillermo, timing, crafts, once again, crafts. And then um, Searchlight. Yeah, exactly. Searchlight never misses in Best Picture. <laughs> yeah, this is, and that was their big end of year pony. Mm -hmm. And Netflix, it's so weird because like they do have a really good slate of films this year. But <laughs> it feels like... They don't have a juggernaut this year. It feels like they were betting on Bardo being their big juggernaut. And ever since it turned out that it wasn't. They kind of haven't really known what to do with 
the rest of their slate. I, yeah, I, I definitely get a sense of right now. I, I my sense of things is their two best picture plays that they're absolutely pushing for in that category are Glass Onion for populist reasons, mm-hmm. which is, you know, I, I get it. And this. And I think when you really break down Academy members, the only hurdle that this movie really has is the animation. Yeah. Because it's the kind of story that I think appeals to them much more. It's something that is, once again, reimagining a classic, but in a mature way. So you'll get a lot of voters who will respond to that. Like, once they know that this is not, I mean, it is a kid's movie to a certain degree, but once they know it's a kid's movie for adults, you're going to get a lot more people responding to it. I mean, I kind of go back and forth almost every day on, will it be this, will it be Glass Onion, or will it be Niver? And it very well could be neither. I, I don't know. I there, I, The thing that I need to see in order to start predicting it for Best Picture is well one actually is to see it get into like some heavy adapted screenplay like nominations or wins from like the big critics groups or even from wga and then the other thing really is like i need to see a big critics group actually put it in their best picture lineup because i think that will give people permission to think of it in that category because that right now that feels like the biggest problem is that voters have just said animated films have their place. Like we did, we, yeah, we had those movies that we liked back then, but the animation really does belongs in its place over here in its own category. And I need to see people saying, no, this is as good a movie as any live action release this year and it should be thought of in the same way that will squash enough people's i think idea that animation is its own separate thing enough for them to say yeah i like that movie enough it wasn't my top 10 films of the year i'm going to vote for it in my top 10 for best picture here's what i need to see i need to see a critic's choice nomination for best picture yeah sure And I need to see a PGA nomination because Up and Toy Story 3 both got in for PGA. You know what didn't? Soul did not get a PGA nomination. But did it Inside Out? No. Okay. Like, there has not been an animated film nominated for PGA since 2010's Toy Story 3. So if it can get in a PGA, I think it's getting in. I tend to go with the PGA 10 more likely than not as my best picture 10. So, yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. I think that the likelihood of PGA going for it is low, but we'll see. We'll also see how the season goes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it still is, you know, going to have to secure animated feature first and foremost. I mean, there's some competition right now from Marcel Vichel with shoes on, so we'll see what happens there. And that's the thing. Like, I think critics are going to go whole hog trying to push Marcel because that is the movie that, like, frankly needs their help to get into that animated feature lineup. Mm-hmm. I agree. 
And that will sort of leave this feeling like just another animated movie. That's what I think will happen. But we'll see. Sarah, any uh, any thoughts or? I would love to see an animated film in Best Picture. I didn't realize it hadn't been since Toy Story, the last one. But twelve years. I'm also really, I know. I'm also really pro Marcel the Shell, so. would love to see that somewhere but yeah yeah i mean like you know here's the thing i adore marcel vachelle with shoes on uh maybe even a little bit more than this Mm -hmm. but i recognize that this has the better shot to get into that category period yeah for sure Mm -hmm. so uh if if the if the goal is to just get an animated film in there this is the this is the the horse you should be backing I mean, look, we're all obviously forgetting the biggest animated film of the year, Avatar The Way of Water. (laughs) All right. All right. On that note, Sarah, where can I find you on the Internet? You can find me on Twitter at Mildred's Fierce. Dan Bear, where can I find you? You can find me on Twitter at Dance and Dan on Film, Letterboxd, Post, and Hive at Dance and Dan. And you can find me sharing the meme of Del Toro saying, and I believe in cinema on Twitter at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to the Next Best Picture podcast review of Pinocchio. Guillermo Del Toro's Pinocchio. Sorry, correction. We don't want to mistake it for <laughs> that other movie earlier this year. You can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. And if you want to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, rate us five stars, drop us a comment, let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.